1: Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast that champions the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and this week we are delighted to be partnered with Johnny Walker. It's very fitting to be talking about Johnny Walker as 2020 marks a milestone year for the world-famous Scotch, with the brand celebrating its 200th anniversary. I have two special guests to discuss this topic. Who better than head of whiskey outreach at Diageo and author of a long stride nicholas morgan published this year to coincide with the bicentenary the book takes a look at the history of johnny walker exploring how it grew from a humble grocery store in Kilmarnock to the global brand it is today i'm also joined by author and whiskey consultant blair bowman he is widely known for founding world whiskey day and listeners of scram will know that blair has featured on the podcast before it's brilliant to partner with johnny walker during such a monumental year for the brand and learn more about its rich Scottish history and enduring spirit. On this episode of Scran, I'm joined by Nicholas Morgan and Blair Bowman to discuss the history, legacy and brand longevity of one of the most famous and recognisable bottles of whisky, Johnny Walker. So hi, Blair and Nicholas, how are you both? Fine,
0: thank
1: you. Hi. Just going to start with Nicholas. You've written a book on Johnny Walker, which I have here, titled A Long Stride. I don't know if anyone can see that. Oh yeah, snap. <laughs> For those that don't know, can you tell me a, just a brief history of how Johnny Walker came to be? Obviously, it all started in Kilmarnock.
2: Yep. So John, John Walker was the son of a farmer who leased a farm at um, a place called Todrigs, just outside Kilmarnock, who's called Alexander Walker. He died in 1819. And uh, his estate was sold, that's his cattle, the chattels and goods of the farm. And the proceeds of that, or some of the proceeds of that, were invested in a grocery shop, uh, which was opened in 1820. And that's the start of the Johnny Walker business. John Walker was a grocer, ran the shop for about 35, 37 years, and during that time built up a speciality in blending Scotch whiskey. So that was when blending Scotch whisky was really just starting. And by the time John died, he was still just a grocer, but he had a very successful local business in selling blended whisky, both retail and wholesale. And his son took over the business and exploded it into a global concern in about 20 years. Quite remarkable. So that's sort of where the business started.
1: I'm assuming it wasn't a common thing for a local grocer to start making blended whisky.
2: No, actually, it, it was very common. And there were, there were 20 or 30 other grocers in Kilmarnock who were all doing exactly the same thing. And there would have been in every sort of town and city in, in Scotland. So blending had been going on since the late 18th, early 19th century, sort of informally. And during the period that John was in business from the 1820s, it became more of a commercial proposition, a real business proposition. And then some of the laws around duties and taxation and whatnot were changed in the early 1860s, and that's what allowed um, John's son Alexander to really expand the business massively and to to take his whiskey around the world.
1: And was there anything in particular that made the Walker family different from other whiskey barons of the time?
2: Yeah, well, the whiskey whiskey barons were really a bit later. You're talking about the 1880s and the 1890s, so it's the point point at which the second generation of the Walker business hands over to the third. And the Whiskey Barons, as they're described in the literature, were known for their for being flamboyant. They indulged in what we would call conspicuous consumption, castles, racehorses, works of art, all this sort of thing. And um, some of them were were publicity seekers. I mean it was part of their business. They were entrepreneurs like you might think of Richard Branson today, you know, they, they were public celebrities, but the Walkers were not. The Walkers were, in, 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 in that respect, quite conservative. They hid their light under a bushel, although they were the, almost certainly the biggest whiskey company in the uh, late 19th century. They, they rarely advertised. They were driven by this sense uh, that if you made the best whiskey, it would sell itself. Quality will sell on its merit. Was one of Alexander Walker's phrases. So that so they were very different from the other big big whiskey firms. By the end of the nineteenth century, and and frankly, they didn't all get on that well together either, because they were like chalk and cheese, really.
1: How important would you say uh, was Comarnock as a place as the starting point for Johnny Walker?
2: Well, it was really important in a, in, in a number of ways. I mean, the first thing is that it, when John Walker's shop started, this was a already an industrial or pre-industrial town with trades such as shoemaking, uh, weaving. And it was going to go through a massive tra- transformation in that first half of the um, 19th century as the heavy industry's first coal, uh, iron, and then railway locomotives come in and railway locomotive manufacture. So the town's growing at a very rapid pace. And that means that um, with a growing working population, there's a growing middle class population. And John's shop is a luxury shop. His blended whiskey is luxury whiskey. So this is whiskey for the increasingly wealthy middle classes who are becoming important in towns like Kilmarnock. The other reason that Kilmarnock was important, just because of where it was. It was in a transit route from any landward transportation from the west. To the Central Belt now, a lot of whiskey from the West actually came into Glasgow by sea routes, of course. But um, but for Walkers, they had they had this proximity first to Campbelltown, and many of the whiskies in the shop uh, when John was there and in in his son as well in the early years were Campbelltown whiskies, very distinctive at, at that time, very smoky, and they also specialised in Isla whisky coming across again from the from the West. And even today, Johnny Walker's whiskies are known for their smokiness. It's a trademark part of Johnny Walker's character, whisky's character. And, th- and that's as a result of the location of the town. That's the sort of whisky they could get and that was the sort of whisky they blended with.
1: And Blair, I'm going to come to you now to ask something which I got wrong as uh, recently as last night. <laughs> Can you tell us the difference between the blended scotch and a blended malt?
0: Yes, yeah, so uh, unfortunately... Scotch whisky is a little bit complicated in that sense. There's not a huge number of differences, but um, it can be complicated to the layperson. So a blended scotch is a combination of single malt whiskies and single grain whisky blended together. But a blended malt is a combination of different single malts without any single grain whisky. So that's it in a nutshell. But in the terms of the wording, it can be easily uh, misunderstood sometimes.
1: And... So Johnny Walker is a blended scotch? Correct.
0: But there is one of the product lines, which is Green Label, which is in fact a blended malt, just to be confusing.
1: Okay. <laughs> Do you feel like when you're tasting them, can you, can you pick that up? Is there a way for, like, you know, I used say the layperson to sort of pick that up, or is it just you would never really know from tasting? I mean,
0: single grain has quite a distinct taste, but, I mean, in a typical blender, it, it varies from blend to blend, but a large proportion of the blend will be single grain whiskey. Um, and then topped up with more flavorful, more kind of strong, intense flavors from single malts. Um, so you can sometimes pick out the fact that it is a blend, perhaps because there's more of that kind of single grain kind of character within it. But it does depend on the blend and the kind of the ratios of single malt to single grain. Um, but when you're tasting it, I mean, you, I would taste it in the same way that I would taste a single malt. It's still a whisky. I'm still kind of assessing and analyzing in the same way I would a single malt.
1: I was going to ask you that later on. Is oh, there sorry. any way to drink it differently? <laughs> but no, it's okay. <laughs> That's fine. So just a question for Nicholas now. What whiskies are in Johnny Walker um and how did that kind of all come together? You've mentioned like the location being important, but I know that right now Diageo are kind of doing the four, four pillars and there's I've been to Glenkinchie and there's other ones as well, but how did that whole whole picture come together in the start?
2: So uh, as I said slightly earlier, you know, in the, in in the early days the whiskies that were that were in the Commando uh, shop and then the sellers of the Comarnock shop were very much, as it were, local whiskies. They were what were easy to obtain. Um, as the business develops into the 1860s and 1870s, you just see a much broader array of uh, single malt whiskies and grain whiskies being kept in, uh, in the inventory. And that reflects a number of things. It re- reflects an increase in the number of distilleries around Scotland, particularly as you get into the 1880s and 1890s. And it also reflects better transport, so it's easier to move whisky around. There's a railway up in Speyside bringing whisky down to the central, central belt and, and so on and so forth. So the, the growth in the number of whiskies that they have in their, in their inventory just, just reflects the general growth of the category. But there was always that strong emphasis on um, West Coast flavours, as I've said earlier. So that, that was one of the things that you always find in the, in the stock books. Of course, as to what goes into Johnny Walker today, well, we have a number of different blends and it's all top secret. There are only a handful of people in the company that know that and uh, I'm not one of them, I can tell you.
1: Just a question for both of you. Why do you think blends were so popular for so long and what caused them to fall out of favour somewhat in sort of recent years? I know they're, they're coming back now, but they had a long period of not being as popular.
2: If you look at Scotch whisky in the 19th century, it was blends that drove all the growth. And it was the, if you like, the perfection of the of the art of blending which brought a very palatable whiskey to populations in England and then around the world who were simply not familiar with Scotch and who would have found drinking single malts extremely difficult. I mean, single malts are sort of grown-up drinks, if you want to call them that, and they they take a bit of time to appreciate and get used to. And one of the things that's a, a very strong story in the book is in fact how consumer taste drives blending and drives actually a trend towards lighter whiskies in the late 19th and early 20th century, particularly as people began drinking scotch with soda. Um, Although when I talk about light whiskies, I think by today's standards, we would probably consider them to be quite heavy because that lightening of character has, um, has gone on. So I think why blended Scotch was so successful was that it brought a drink to people that people wanted. It was a drink of consumer choice. Now, of course, blended whiskey still far outsells any other source of Scotch. I mean, it's about 90% of the whole category. But over the past um, 25, 30 years in particular, there's been a, a booming in growth in single malts, people looking for more particular flavors, wanting to explore the whole variety that only Scotch whisky can give you because there are so many different tastes and flavours amongst its single malts and grains. And so that's that, that's knocked in a bit on uh, on the sales of blends. So as I say, globally, blends are still around 90, 90% of all sales and at the moment are doing pretty well. I mean, I'm not sure what Blair would say about that, but that would be my view.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, uh, I thought as well you might touch on the kind of the phylloxera having a kind of little part in the story of kind of pushing... Uh, blends people used to drink cognac and then unfortunately this kind of uh, vine disease came to France which uh, kind of basically decimated all the vines so there was no cognac available and so people kind of shifted to something else and scotch happened to be kind of there at the right time that's that's often quoted quite often Um, but in terms of the kind of the move at the moment and more recently I think it's been driven actually by education I think the fact that consumers are becoming much more educated and understanding why single malt is what it is why is it unique and actually why you pay a premium for it, because it's crafted and it's skilled and it's, it's well-aged and it's well-matured and the quality of the casks and, and so on. But I think, unfortunately, kind of blended whiskey has been through a bit of a, a patch where it has been seen as kind of inferior or kind of uh, less premium, basically, because it's cheaper. But the reason it's cheaper is because it's cheaper to make because of the, the scale that it's done in and the fact that it uses single grain, which is a you know slightly cheaper product to make and so on. So I think now that there's more education, I think people are kind of, starting as uh, coming into the category of scotch whiskey through blends and through the work that johnny walker's done promotion promoting cocktails and different ways of appreciating scotch whiskey is a great kind of stepping stone and gateway into the category but then once you've kind of experienced kind of what you enjoy within that you can then go off as as they've kind of done with the four corners and you can explore the different aspects that go into these flavors and understand why they are you know different and the the thing that really attracted me into whiskey in the first place was When I learned that, you know, all single malt whiskies are made from the same three ingredients: water, malted barley, and yeast. They all use the same process, more or less, the same raw materials, the same you know way of manufacturing it. But they all taste so unique and so profoundly different. And I think once consumers learn that and start to understand why they're different, that's where they get this bug and they want to go and explore and find out more about why they're different. So, so I think that's kind of the way that people are often moving at the moment through Scotch whisky, but starting with blends as the kind of Gateway into the category.
1: So just to go back, Nicholas, you mentioned that the Walker family didn't really advertise that much, but I don't know if um, you guys watched it. But there was that documentary was out recently about Johnny Walker at the virtual Edinburgh Film Festival, and there was a part in that that talks about how some of the advertising went against typical stereotypes. Is that something that you could talk a little bit about?
2: So Walkers didn't really advertise until the early twentieth century. And by that time, they were amongst maybe three or four other brands that, that really led led the blended Scotch category, two of the others being Dewars and uh, Buchanans. Dewars and Buchanans were relatively late comers, uh, certainly compared to Walkers. But one of the reasons that they'd become so successful was that they adopted new advertising techniques from the 1890s when, when, when Walkers still believed the quality was, was enough. And by, by the time the um, 20, early 20th century came along, um, Walkers realized they had to do something. And the irony was that out there in the world of popular culture, Scotland and England and some of their big export markets like Australia and South Africa, everyone was calling the brand Johnny Walker. Okay, We've got records of the brand being called Johnny Walker going back to the 1880s. But the family, who still ran the business, the family refused to adopt that name because they thought it was disrespectful to the founder, okay, to John. So it took a non-family member to come into the business in the early 20th century, a man called James Stevenson, although he was also from Kilmarnock. And Steven, Stevenson was the man that persuaded them they had to advertise to compete and that this property that already existed, Johnny Walker, this name, was so resonant that that was sort of how they had to develop the advertising. And in turn, they brought in leading advertising agent, a man called Paulie Derrick. Derrick brought in a leading illustrator called Tom Brown, who created this figure, which went against all the stereotypes in whiskey advertising. There was no tartan, right? There was no heather. There was nothing about Highland origins. This was a cosmopolitan figure, a vigorous, progressive. And in the advertising brief, that's what they talked about. They wanted this figure to represent the spirit of the business. So when he was launched on the world in 1908, people were absolutely astonished. I mean, it's one of the most impactful advertising campaigns that was ever launched um, and, and changed the semiotics of whiskey advertising at a stroke, um, I would say. And of course, it's still very much at the heart of the brand. That's how it's recognised the whole world over, which is an astonishing thing for an advertising campaign really still to be going a hundred years later. You know, it's remarkable.
1: That's the um, the top hatted striding man, isn't it? The striding man,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: Who still looks very dapper today.
2: <laughs> he does. He does. Although he now walks in a different direction, but that's a that's another story.
1: Oh, really? Is that what? Wh- where was he going before?
2: Well, he was going. He was going. For- from one way, left to right, then now he goes right to left or the other way. But the point was, he was when the brand was not doing so well in the late 1990s, People, marketing people took a long and hard look at what the brand was about. They came up with this idea of reinvigorating the striding man figure. So he was, he was reborn, really, by an advertising agency called BBH. And that was the start of Johnny Walker's Keep Walking campaign that began in the early part of this, this century. And it had a huge effect. I mean, there was the sales leapt by about almost 10 million cases in about nine years. I mean it's an absolutely remarkable impact, which was similar to what had happened when they first brought this man into the in, man with the top hat into the business, you know? So it's a very enduring figure and I think it's very meaningful for people all over the world.
1: Yeah. Which brings me on to my next question, which is Johnny Walker's is seen all around the world as an aspirational brand although I think it's aspirational and accessible rather than something that you can't really afford. How would you say that's mainly been achieved and where's the farthest flung place that enjoys a Johnny Walker?
2: Yeah, I mean, you're quite right about aspirational and accessible. I'll just pick up on that point. And, and I think we shouldn't forget, that here we look at Johnny Walker Red Label in a particular way, but in many markets around the world, Johnny Walker Red Label is considered to be a huge luxury purchase. So uh, diff- different markets, different cultures see these brands in slightly different ways. In, um, in 1880, Walkers were already exporting to Australia, South Africa, New Zealand. They were in Egypt. They were in um, South China. They were in Penang, Singapore, Hong Kong. So the global reach of, of Walkers is astonishing. And they were selling in something like 120-odd markets just at the end of the First, first World War. So people have been enjoying Walker whiskey in the most far-flung places for well over a century, if not a century and and a half. And that's one of the remarkable things about the brand, I think. And and undoubtedly, as, as some of the old guys I talked to who'd worked on the brand in overseas export markets in the 60s and 70s told me, the thing about the brand was the man in the top hat, the square bottle and the label at this sort of 20, 22, 24 degrees angle, it sort of changed a bit over the years. And that gave it this sort of instant recognition wherever wherever you went. And 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 broadly speaking, there isn't a corner of the world, even the most hidden corner of the world, I imagine, where someone hasn't sat down with a bottle of Johnny Walker at some point over the past 200 years.
1: Claire, do you have anything to add
2: to
0: that? Can I ask you a question, Nicholas? So I've often heard cited that before the very first bottle of Coca-Cola had left the shores of the U.S. and come to Europe, Johnny Walker was already available in 100 markets.
2: Well, that figure, Blair, that I mentioned, 122 markets, I counted them up. That was a long time ago, but that was a piece of work that I did years ago. And Coca-Cola at the time was sold in three markets, wow. United States, Canada, and Mexico. Because they
0: often say the same about Coca-Cola being a kind of globally recognized name and brand that even you know, in the most far-flung locations, you can say Coca-Cola and people know it. And I think you're right. I think the same can be said about Johnny Walker for
2: sure. Absolutely, and and Johnny Walker was there a long time before before. (laughs) Coca Cola. Yeah.
1: Like you, you mentioned the bottle and the label, and that's something that brands are striving for. Like today, you know, the amount of brands that are launching, trying to get a distinguished bottle and a distinguished look on the back of a bar. Was that a conscious decision by them, or was it just something that was at the time something that was just done, like the, the shape of the bottle or the way the label was?
2: I mean, for for a while, they were using both round and square bottles, and they settled on the square bottle as, as the thing that was going to be for the brand. But the, uh, the slanting label was the most deliberate thing, the most deliberate thing. And there's a trademark case in the early 1880s in the Court of Session in Edinburgh, and they talk about this, this design being deliberately to make it a distinctive and recognisable package. So it was a very, very well thought out thing. Not just the angle of the label, but the name Johnny Walker around the closure, which is still there um, today in script. Everything about it was brilliantly thought out. And that was done by John Walker's son, Alexander, and by a printing firm in Kilmarnock called Smith's, who must have done all the original designs. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant.
0: Can I just come back to one of the points we talked about the aspirational side of it? Something I think that is particularly clever about the whole kind of Johnny Walker range is the fact that it has this kind of leveling up that you can go through as a kind of consumer so your starting point might be john walker red as it's the kind of entry level point but you can go all the way through explore different flavors you know going on to black double black you know gold um up to kind of blue but now you can kind of go beyond blue into the kind of john walker range which is kind of ultra premium ultra luxurious but i think unlike lots of other brands it is quite amazing that it can straddle from really the kind of entry level affordable you yeah. know but still a premium still a luxury product for most people but all the way through to the kind of most luxurious liquid you can ever have a chance to taste and i think that's quite special about it yeah
2: it's remarkable something something for every palate, and something for every pocket yeah. and for a brand whatever category you're in to have that sort of reach to consumers is one of the things i think that makes it so wedded in uh, popular culture you know mm.
1: And it has been enjoyed by a few famous faces. It has. It has, yes. Blair, you said that you wouldn't taste a blend any differently from a single malt. But for anyone that hasn't tuned in to me talking to you about this before, could you just give some top tips on how you taste whiskey?
0: Yeah, I mean, in the simplest way, don't don't overthink about it. You know, just just enjoy it and just kind of explore the flavours as they're coming to you. But I mean, when you really are trying to analyse it, that's different than just kind of enjoying it. If you're really trying to explore the flavors, you want to have a kind of nice nosing glass or a wine glass so you can kind of swirl it around, really get your nose into it to get the flavors. We can, we can smell aromas much more than we can taste. So spend a lot of time really smelling it. And initially, if you're not used to this kind of you know, tasting, then, you know, it might taste like whiskey and that's fine. But try to get beyond that and start to see if you can identify different things. And the, the beauty of it is there's no wrong answers ever. Um. So especially if you're doing it with someone else, you know, they may say bananas by, you know, logic, you'll also suddenly get bananas as well, because someone said the word bananas. And now everyone's thinking about bananas. Try to think beyond that and see what you can get. And the way that I do is I kind of start at a kind of big picture level and think, am I getting citrus? Or am I getting, you know, cream cakes? Or am I getting whatever? And if I got citrus, I would then kind of narrow it in and zoom in until I'm able to kind of put my finger on what it is that I'm getting. So if it was citrus, I would then think, right, am I getting oranges or am I getting lemons or limes or grapefruit? And if it was grapefruit, I'd then think, right, am I getting pink grapefruit or white grapefruit? Is it kind of been toasted? Has it been added with kind of caramelised sugar? Is it, is it just the peel? Is it just the pith? Is it whatever? And just kind of by practice and by elimination, it's almost like a game of guess who. I'm kind of zooming in to find out what it is that I'm experiencing, what it is that I'm kind of picking up and detecting within the whiskey, And that's all kind of can be done on your nose before you've even tasted it. And then when you do taste it, you know, have... I would say have an initial sip um, because that first sip, your palate's going to get a kind of shock if it's not had any alcohol yet today. It's not sure, you know, we're always in this kind of automatic fight and flight mode that we have a kind of split second for our instincts to kick in and tell us if something is poisonous and going to kill us or not. Um, So especially if this is the first time you've had alcohol that day, have a first sip and not worry about it too much, just kind of experience it and then have a breath and then have a second sip. And on the second sip, I would say try and leave it in your mouth as long as you can to really kind of chew and extract all the flavours. If you're just doing a shot of whiskey, you're trying to get the experience over with as fast as possible. And you're just going to experience alcohol burn. It's going to hit the back of your throat. Your body's going to go into that shock mode of thinking, oh my God, there's alcohol here. What is this? And you're not going to experience any of the flavours. So the kind of main message I would say is kind of don't worry about it. Just enjoy it and take your time and see what you get. And remember that there's no wrong answers in what you're tasting.
1: And that's also a good uh, indication as to why shots aren't a good idea. Yeah, I mean, ever. <laughs> definitely.
0: I mean, I just, I wouldn't encourage anyone to drink shots. You should drink responsibly, but by drinking a shot, you're not actually experiencing this incredible craft that's been put in front of you. And the, the kind of slightly kind of, I don't know, sad thing about drinking whiskey is as soon as you drink it, that experience is lost. It's not lost, but it's, it's gone, it's finished. You can't replicate it. Um, and, you know, I'm sure Nicholas is also very lucky to taste very rare and incredible, you know, whiskeys, and I'm very fortunate to do that as well sometimes. And there's quite a special moment, you know, all of this whiskeys life has been waiting for this moment to be in a bottle, you know, transported to the other side of the world to some far-flung location, for example. It gets opened, it gets shared around with your friends and loved ones, it gets in the glass, you know, you get the glass to your mouth, and you, you nose it, and then as soon as you swallow it, that kind of moment is finished. All of its preamble, all of its journey has led up to that point. Um, And I think, especially when you're talking about, you know, really exclusive and kind of rare whiskies, there's a kind of slightly strange element there that that whiskey is becoming kind of closer to extinction every time, especially if it's a single cask whiskey or a particularly old bottle. You know, as more as that's consumed, you can't ever bring that back. And I think that's something quite unusual about whiskey in the kind of other world of luxury and kind of art and fine goods and whatever you can. Multiple people can experience art. Artwork can be sold multiple times generations and generations of people can appreciate it but with a bottle of whiskey as soon as it's on you know opened up that's it you know it's now be, to be shared with everyone that's getting a chance to experience it but anyway I'm kind of going on a little bit of a kind of romantic rant here I get quite romantic about it but I think it is quite a lovely special thing about whiskey and even at the kind of entry level side of the craft you can still have those kind of moments.
2: I think you're right Of course, what I would say is that the skill of the blenders who put together something like Johnny Walker Red or Johnny Walker Black Label or Johnny Walker Blue is that as far as possible, it's going to be the same every time you drink it. And that's that's a remarkable achievement mm. to you know, to be able to to achieve that sort of consistency from batch to batch, bottle to bottle, so that you can guarantee to consumers that they will be able to replicate that very special moment. That's and that's yeah. the thing that sets Blends apart and certainly was one of the key factors in their success in the late 19th and early 20th century that, that these early guys who were doing it could achieve such remarkable consistency uh, in the product so that you knew what you were getting
0: uh, when you opened a bottle. And the fact that it's consistent you know, all the time, all around the world. You know, so if you're in Sydney or New York or Paris and you drink a Johnny Walker black label, it's Johnny Walker black label. You, know, you just happen to be in a different environment. And when
2: they when they introduced the Striding Man advertising in 1908, that was one of the things they put on the pack as well. Same quality guaranteed throughout the world. Yeah. Same quality guaranteed throughout the world,
1: yeah. So Since we're chatting so much about uh, whiskey, do you guys have a favourite um, Johnny Walker drink or serve or cocktail or do you like to just have it straight on the rocks?
2: I'm probably, certainly at this time of year, I'm probably a bit more of a... Um, Johnny Walker Black Label with a cube of ice and a little bit of water in it. Um, but when it's uh, when it gets warmer again, <laughs> which I'm sure it will at some point, I'm quite fond of a highball. You know, so drink 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 my Scotch long with um, with ginger ale actually, and a cube cube of ice and some nice garnish. It's a really delicious way to drink whiskey, particularly if you're not that used to it or if you're a bit frightened of it. The, the long highball, red red or black label drinks absolutely great.
0: Uh, same for me. I mean, one of my go tos is Johnny Walker Black Label with ginger or soda. I mean, I probably interchange between them, just depending on my kind of mood or where I am or, or what I'm doing. But also, I mean, in the winter, I'm quite a fan of a hot toddy. I mean, last night I had a delicious uh, Johnny Walker Gold Label with uh, hot apple juice. Um, absolutely delicious. Super simple. A little bit of lemon. A little bit of honey. Cloudy apple juice with Johnny Walker Gold. Um, just lovely and wintry and warming and. And I think that's something that, you know, unlike other drinks, Scotch whiskey has this huge versatility. You know, so you can drink it in the summer, you can drink it in the winter, you can drink it in the spring, you know, lots of different ways, lots of different scenarios, environments, occasions. It just kind of fits the bill.
1: And so Johnny Walker is now owned by Diageo. Uh, Nicholas, could you just sort of tell me a bit about how that came about and what the implications have been?
2: Yeah, it's Well, it's a, it's a bit complicated because it goes back to the uh, 1920s when John Walker & Sons, John Durer & Sons, James Buchanan and & Company, and the Distillers Company, the latter being the largest producer of grain whiskey in Scotland, merged uh, in 1924-1925. And the Distillers Company continued to operate until 1987, when it merged with Guinness. And the whiskey side of that business was called United Distillers, which I started working for in 1990. And then in 1997, United Distillers Guinness merged with Grand Metropolitan to form Diageo. So it's a long sort of process of um, consolidation, which the industry has followed in general. Uh, I think what it's meant for Johnny Walker, uh, which was a business that was always obsessed with having access to the very best whiskey stocks. What it means for Johnny Walker today is that they have access to over 10 million casks of maturing Scotch whisky, which is stored in several locations in Scotland. And and quite simply, no one else has access to that range, as Blair was talking about earlier, of tastes and flavours, which are so important in producing the very best blends. You know, we were talking about blended whisky and malt whisky. Are they better than one another or that sort of stuff? It's not really how it works. But the thing is, you need the very best single malt whisky to make the very best blended whisky and making the very best blended whiskey is what Johnny Walker is about. So these stocks of whiskey that that Diageo, with its distilling estate, uh, provides for us are absolutely critical to the brand's continued and future success.
1: And just a last quick question before we move on to Desert Island jams. Was there anything particularly surprising that you found out when you were researching and writing the book?
2: Well, I, I, I was surprised about the point about the family not wanting to use the name Johnny Walker. I hadn't I hadn't known that before, and I hadn't known how strongly that name existed in popular culture from the 1880s. I think probably the other thing is just how how people consumed Scotch whiskey changed so much over the 19th and 20th century because Blair was talking about hot toddies. Well, the classic toddy, which whiskey, sugar, hot water, and lemon was really the most respectable way of drinking Scotch whisky up until some point in the 1880s and 1890s. And it's only then that people start drinking whisky and soda because you've got large quantities of of, um, sparkling mineral waters uh, available for the first time. And that actually brings about a change in the style of blends, from a heavier blend for making toddies to a slightly lighter blend for making whisky and soda. And I hadn't, to be honest, I was surprised and hadn't understood how pervasive toddy drinking was in uh, in popular culture in Scotland and in England
0: uh, at that time.
1: And Blair, is there anything from the book that you thought, oh, I didn't know that?
0: I think it's just fantastic that Nicholas has spent so much time researching this. I know it's been quite a big project. And I think it's delight- just really delightful now that we have access to this fantastic piece of history that kind of pulls the whole Johnny Walker story together, because there have been lots of pieces of information available but it's now great to have it in a kind of single form and yeah i'd encourage anyone interested in the brand and in the, the product to to get the book because it's a fantastic book really enjoyed it
1: the last part of the podcast is a quick fire question round um called desert island jams blade i've done this for you before so i'm going to start with you okay and i'll see i'll see if you say the same answers last time if you could only take three jams onto a desert island what would they be and why
0: so my three drams that I would take are uh, Johnny Walker Black Label because it just works all the time. And all, so even if there was a storm and it was cold, I'd have it in a hot toddy. If it was hot and sunny and I had access to ice and soda, I'd have it in highball. Um, so I'd, just because it's versatility, um, because I, I just like it in all, all varieties, I would have Johnny Walker Black. Um, I think the others just for it to change it up. Sometimes I would like to have a Ben Romack 10-year-old. I just always really have enjoyed Ben Romack 10. I just think it's a classic space side whiskey it's juicy and fruity but it's got a little bit of kind of peat smoke to it and it's just a yeah, really lovely lovely dram um and then the other one just for something a little bit kind of if i wanted something a bit
1: more smoky and
0: robust and intense i'd have a lefroy quarter cask so those are my
2: three
1: and uh, nicholas what about you
2: well so the so the first thing i'd make sure i uh, rescued from the boat would be a bottle of johnny walker black label without without doubt it, it is the desert island dram i mean with 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 no exception um, and then I think a bit like Blair, I'd like to vary, vary out uh, what, what I had either side of that. Uh, so for me, I'd have to take a bottle of Lagaville and 16-year-old with me to get really smoky, intense bonfire sort of flavours. And then I'd also take actually a bottle of um, leash 14-year-old from Brewer up on the northeast coast, which is just a wonderful, complex single malt, which you could just sit with a glass for many hours and just think, think about what you're drinking, which is always a lovely, lovely part of enjoying
1: your whisky. Nice. Well, thank you very much. I think that's uh, probably everything. But thank you for your time. It's been great, great to find out more. And nice to speak to you both. Thank
2: you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. That was a fascinating interview from Nick and Blair. Go and check out Nick's book, A Long Stride, if you haven't already. It's a really great, comprehensive guide to the Johnny Walker story, and you can tell it's a real passion project for Nick. I had no idea that the direction of the top-hatted walking man had changed. It's so iconic because it's recognised all over the world, seen at Johnny e. Walker events and has even been turned into Jane Walker to celebrate International Women's Day. But it also didn't disappoint on his tasting tips and serving suggestions. It proves again that Scotch whisky has so many roots and fascinating Scottish heritage. Thanks again to Johnny Walker for partnering with us in this episode. You can download Scram wherever you get your podcasts, but for exclusive, interactive and immersive content you can download the NTL app. Scran is a logical production, presented and co-produced by me, and Derskin, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Morgan McIntyre.